This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 197. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Quick announcement, we're about a month and a half away from the SNN Network Canada Virtual Event happening December 7th through 9, 2021. Paul Andriola from Small Cap Discoveries and myself on behalf of SNN Network are teaming up to highlight our neighbors to the north, Canada. In the last five to 10 years, small micro and nano cap investors have been finding valuable creative opportunities in this space. So we decided to host an event that encapsulates all of this especially some of these companies that are uh, listed on the TSX, TSXV, CSC, and even the NEO. So you can expect three days of keynotes, educational panels, company presentations, and one-on-one meetings. To register, please go to canada.snn.network and click the register button. We look forward to seeing you all there. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Edward Chang. He is the founder of Pledge Capital, and we recently met via Twitter after seeing that he shared a recent episode of Compounders. After doing some research on Edward and his firm, Pledge Capital, I can't believe it's taken me this long to find and have him on the show. As the title alludes, our conversation is all about hunting for compounders or companies undergoing transformations that could lead to a compounding scenario, the latter point being explored the most. I really enjoyed learning about Edward's approach, and he shares a few case studies that support his thesis. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 197 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Edward Chang. back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And my guest today is a gentleman who we met, I'd say, relatively recently uh, vis-a-vis Ben Claremont through his podcast. And uh, I, we didn't, I just, I stalked him. It was kind of one of those things. Just saw that he was interested in one of the interviews that we did. And uh, I hit him up and said, you know, I think we have a lot to talk about. So joining me right now is Ed Chang. He is the founder of Pledge Capital. Ed, thanks for joining me, man. How are you doing? Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. I've watched a bunch of your videos in the past, so I guess I've stalked you as well. So it's all good. Uh, I've been, uh, been a fan of your work and I'm, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. It's a mutual stalking relationship. I mean, you exactly. know, the, the, the beauty of the internet, you can, we can, we can stalk each other. We have no idea until one of us says, exactly. okay, I, think I, I guess we should contact each other. Right. Yeah. 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 It's been a <laughs> fan of uh, some of your work. We were talking earlier, uh, watched, must've watched your joint avid, a uh, bunch of other 
Killish Barnes videos in the past. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, and we'll definitely get into some of those case studies as well, because I think, uh, you know, um, one of the coolest things that I, uh, that on, on your website, you have, you have a tagline, you know, uh, for, for your <laughs> firm about keep compounding. And so, you know, with the podcast that we just started with Ben Claremont, uh, you know, compounders podcast, the anatomy of a multibagger, I think it'd be pretty cool to hear your definition on compounding, but we'll get there. We'll get okay. there. Everybody listen. We'll, we'll get there. We're going to build up to right. that, you know, because okay. I, I, this is my first time, this is our first time chatting together. You know, I, I'd love to, to start off with where your passion for investing began. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I really have to give a shout out to my parents um, who helped me discover investing. My father bought a book uh, by Matthew, Matt Sato out in San Francisco, uh, Wall Street Wiz or Wiz Kid on Wall Street. Forgot the exact name now, but um, I've always loved history. I've always, you know, I was a big gamer when I was younger and um when I picked up that book, just fell in love just with the stories Matt Stato shared uh, on, on investing. And it just seemed like this tremendously interesting puzzle. And uh, from there, you know, just, you know, got introduced to the, the stock market, started to pick my own stocks and never really looked back. It, it was really a passion first and, you know, read everything I could absorb on it. Um, and gosh, 20 years later, uh, you know, followed my dream, started my started pledge capital, and uh, it's it's been a it's been a cool run. So tell me, you know, I mean, what age was that when you first picked up that book? Were you a teenager or high school? Yeah, like, what was exactly. I was a teenager, early probably 12 or 13, finishing up middle school. It was right after the tech bubble, so you know, it was a very fortunate, fortuitous time to get started in the stock market uh lots of bargains uh the first stock i picked uh direct consumer uh computer gaming company ordered a laptop ordered a, a computer you know could customize pick what video card i wanted i thought it was a a, a bargain versus what i could get at best buy or, or circuit city back then and and you know Long story short, you know, everything was bombed out after the tech bubble. So it just, it, it did well the first two years or so that it held it. Very cool. All right. So, you know, from the initial, you know, passion for investing, catching us up to pledge capital, I mean, you know, you must have had a couple jobs along the way that got you there. So yeah. I'd love to hear, love to, love to hear that experience. Well, I, Eventually ended up at NYU studying business. Uh, and this was, you know, I kind of went through that um, during the, the recession, right? A lot of those years were the recession years and it was tough, right? I mean, but you have to play the long game. My first job out of school wasn't actually in investing. You know, I ended up at Deloitte, um, but down my way, you know, back to the sell side, uh, I had interviewed on the buy side for before <laughs> actually uh, met the chairman of uh, you know Einheiser Bush and in uh, I believe Burger King too during that interview during my last round but you know it didn't work out but found myself uh, you know back in the industry uh, covering restaurant stocks at, at UBS where I learned a tremendous amount um, under Keith uh, my boss he was a good 
good stock picker, really good stock picker. I learned a ton about catalysts, and business transformations, watched some super interesting uh, strategic moves at Donald's and Panera and Buffalo Wild Wings. And um, yeah, I, I uh, interviewed um, and a bunch of you know, folks on the buy side uh, some opportunities there. They just wanted me to cover restaurants and REITs, right? And maybe one other sector. And, you know, w- the problem that I had with the sell side was just I felt really constrained, you know, kind of handcuffed. I couldn't look at everything, right? And and so that was a huge, you know, one of the big factors in me, you know, plus the fact that I've always wanted to do it, right? I've always wanted to start my own company, um, you know, n- Part of it was also I had a you know a lot of confidence in in a new investment strategy that you know I was kind of it was evolving in my head. Um, it started with Netflix, right? Like it, it's this whole idea you want to buy like these transformations, you know, companies that are about to go up an S curve. Um, and I feel like I kind of finished that. I started that with Netflix. Um, you know, in 2013, 2014, started to learn and develop that idea and watching uh, Panera and McDonald's and Buffalo Wild Wings go through similar transformations from um, whether it's a digital transformation or, or a refranchising strategy, uh, had a lot of confidence and and wanted to go out there and, and see what kind of great investments that I could discover with this kind of idea, this philosophy in mind. And so that's when I made the leap and started Pledge Capital. All right, there we go. So that's a perfect segue because, uh, you know, again, before we get into some of the case studies and compounding, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit more, you know, about your investment approach that you're looking to employ or that you're, you've been employing at Pledge Capital, mm-hmm. which you found in 2016, correct? That's right. Five years now, a little bit over five years. Nice. So, so let's hear. So let's hear that. You know, t- tell us a little bit more about the the the, the firm's investment approach. Yeah, sure. So, it love compounders, right? I mean, you you mentioned compounder and and compounding, and um, that's what we try to do, right? Uh, probably half the investments we try to target could be a young company, could be some sort of business that we think has a lot of compounding potential. Uh, another bucket that we really like to look out for are companies making some sort of transformation, right? That can become a compounder. Maybe it's not now, and it has the potential to become a compounder um, because of the, the strategic decisions that management is uh, undertaking to, to transform the business, right? So, you know, I think I got started um, in part Due to uh, Chuck Aker, uh, back in 2010, 2011, I bought Mastercard and, and Google, and that's you know where I feel like I really started on this journey, looking for compounders, you know, businesses. By my definition, it's a business that has a lot of growth opportunity. It has because there's a large TAM. Uh, there's a very there's a couple one or a few strong competitive advantages uh, that give me the the confidence that they can actually execute and, and grow into this TAM. 
lots of people have done a lot of work in this area. So, you know, I just, you know, I think at this point, um, there it's very well discussed. So definitely those two factors and just, you know, good business, right? Like both Google and MasterCard are, are high margin capital light businesses, you know, and so um, learn a tremendous amount, you know, about that model as well at UBS, um, analyzing franchise stocks. So I'm always keeping an eye out on these young companies that I think fit that criteria. Uh, lots of room to grow, some reason they, that, that I believe they can win, uh, and just a good model and, you know, ideally run by a good management team. And, um, you know, sometimes I like to judge a management team on um, what they're doing, right? What, what kind of transformations they're, they're undergoing to improve the business, right? Because companies have to evolve, right? The world is always changing and good management teams will, you know, will stay abreast or, or, or stay ahead of, of the curve. And so uh, love it when I see a company's um, CEO and, and C-suite making changes that I think improve the, the competitive advantage of, of a company. That, that's overarching kind of thought process. Very cool. I, want to, I actually wanted to dig a little deeper because you mentioned in, the, in, in your investment pitch deck about um, how on your investing philosophy side, that you believe that market misprices companies that are on the cusp of inflection points that will enhance their value. So this is really an, an interesting rabbit hole for me because this is more way more of an art than a science is trying to understand what, when some of these mispriced companies are on the cusp of an inflection point. You know, what are some of the things that you look for uh, when you are trying to find companies that fit that criteria? Like, oh, here we go. The setup is perfect. No, that's a, that's a good question. And, you know, a lot of times people naturally doubt what they don't understand, right? I think that's just a pretty human, you know, characteristic. It's pretty human, you know, kind of think something we, we all do. If we don't know it, uh, lots of times we, we don't think very highly of it, right? And so there's, there's that one factor. Um, coming from the sell side, you know, talking to all these different investors, right? Like I really felt I got a sense of what like a hundred investors thought on McDonald's or Panera uh, during their transformations, right? And uh, frankly, I think Wall Street often has a very short-term focus. They're really looking at the next quarter or the next two quarters. Like they're always asking, well, why hasn't it worked yet, right? Like it's taking longer. Is it, is it actually working? Uh, or things like, uh, oh, you know, it's taking them so long. Like why can't someone else just do it? too right like there's there's, there's gonna be you know people they ask a lot of different questions um and uh they don't always believe these inflection points are are actually going to work right and so what what i like to look out for is i mean some some people have called it kind of like a, an inevitable future right like something that's so superior, so much better than what exists today, right? The, it's, it's, there's less friction for the customer. It's an improved experience. It's more convenient. Maybe it's cheaper. It, it's just, it's, it's a better value proposition, right? And 
you pick compounders that way to, to a large extent you have to judge a business transformation the same way too right like is this future that management team is building towards is it just fundamentally better and um so that's that's the main thing that i look out for and i'm willing to overlook you know because things don't get rome wasn't built in a day right things don't take uh it, it, they don't they're that immediacy that that short-term focus i think it it's something that can be used uh you know to your advantage right long-term investor has an advantage over uh lots of other investors who are just more short-term focused and so you know if it's something's taking longer i don't i don't mind that right it's, it's for me it's all about looking out two three years is this fundamentally better than what's out there at the moment and that is so hard to do. Let, let's not let's not un, you know uh, devalue. Or I, I don't. I'm, I'm missing the word, but like let's not you know underestimate like how difficult that actually is. Because you could find a company where in that moment you might think, "Wow, like the value prop on this seems way better than it's either the legacy systems that are the way things are done or any of its competitions that trying to you know make things more efficient." Um, you know, you know, they're, they're, it's still really difficult. Be, and, and then it's because it, it, a lot of it has to do with timing and making sure that not only do you find something that there is a real value prop there that is better than the competition and the legacy systems, but you're not late. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, how, yeah, how hard does that been? Yeah. So, yeah, that's why you really have to understand what the market, um, you know, what the market thinks, too. I. That, that's a really good point, right? Like, are, are you late, right? Or if you're late, do, can you scale that that curve of understanding where you understand, where you know the story well enough that you can still say confidently that it's still a good risk reward from here? And that is is a, it's judgment call at the end of the day, right? It's it's part art, it's part science. Um, even you know the smartest investors can can get that wrong and, and sell out too early, right? I think, you know, the investment greats have always, you know, like a Peter Lynch has always argued that, you know, the, the greatest error is selling out too early before, you know, <laughs> before the, the story is really finished and fully appreciated, right? And, and, and the fact is with some of these great businesses, they, they do have the potential to, really outperform your expectations, right? Where you go back every quarter, year after year, and they're just beating what you thought was, you know, possible in, in your wildest, you know, kind of you know, bullish scenario. And so there is definitely that aspect. Um, and then there's also the aspect where you know, it, this story now everyone understands, right? It's two, three years. Pretty much the street understands the story, and so there's it's it's a balancing act between um, well, is there still a lot of room to grow, or is this so well understood and fully priced in? And so, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, that's not a it's it's not easy to always get that right. Um, and uh, what we try to do is, you know, we're we're always looking, we're always underwriting uh, what the prospective IRs are for a five, six, seven year period. And, um, you know, 
when we look to swap one stock out for another one, um, well, one, our original investment, we probably know very well, and we have a lot of confidence in. So you have to, that becomes our cost of capital, right? That we compare everything against. And it's not easy, right? I think all investors have sold out of a stock earlier than they should have, or they left money on the table. Uh, but it's a balancing act, and uh, it's it's a it's a constant learning process. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, uh, as I alluded to at the open of this, you know, the, the pledge capital has that tagline. You know, keep compounding. I mean, I don't know. Firstly, are we compounder bros? Is that what I, we have to do? We I think I, so. Yeah, we are. We, it, I, I, bet. <laughs> I think I think I fall under that category for the most part. <laughs> well, it's oh, at, least, at least you accept it, right? I mean, I, yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have to ask then, you know, what, just like how everybody has their, it's seemingly their own definition of value investing and growth and then, you know, for, and, and, and just their own definition of those different styles at this point, you know, for you, what, what does, what does compounding mean to you? I mean, at the base, it's, it's about building wealth, right? It's about, um, the, the struggle that I always had with, I think, traditional value investing. And I'm, and I'm not saying that I'm not a value investor. All, you know, investors are, they're looking for values. It's a different definition of it. And, uh, you know, looking out longer to find something that's underpriced, right? And so for me, it's a really about um, finding something where I don't have to come back in six months or a year and Okay, this this is probably it, right? This is the best. Most of the alpha is gone. Now you have a ten uh, stock portfolio, and you're always recycling and churning the positions. And frankly, it's more work, right? I mean, the reason that I first got into Mastercard and Visa is because, well, I thought I could probably hold them for a really long time. And for me, that's like, well, you know, if the stock can double, and I still believe it can double. For me, that made a lot, lot more sense than looking for this low P stock that traded at six or seven or eight times that I think can double. And then that's probably it, right? Like cyclical business that, uh, oh, so maybe not at a low P, maybe it's a high P and, and you sell it at low P. But, um, but for me, it's just, I always thought it made more sense to, to look longer term, right? Look beyond that, that typical holding period, right? Like that alpha, all right, I'm, holding for a double and then there's probably not much juice afterwards right like i want to look for you know oranges and when lemons that, that have a lot of juice right like after you've juiced it, it it replenishes itself and so that was always the goal right that's the reason that i eventually over time switched from what you know you think of as typical more typical value to to compounding growth type investments and that's not to say that value investing doesn't work. I think it does work, right? I think growth investing is a, is a it, it's, it's part of value investing. And um, I still find stocks um, to this day that in my opinion, sell for a discount to the net asset value, right? Replacement value. Um, but I'm only really interested in those stocks if you know, I can look out five, 10 years and get a ton of growth uh, potential. I can see, or or project out, you know, a range of scenarios, including some, or you know, on average, 
um, scenarios that, you know, there's probably three, four, five X upside to, you know, income. And that's when I, that's only, that's only time that I feel I'm very interested in, in that, in that, you know, traditional value investing type approach because you, you solve for the problem of that constant churn, right? Like I think when I was younger, a lot of the stocks that I gravitated towards didn't hold them for that long, right? I was trying to buy things that were going to mean revert, uh, wasn't necessarily thinking three, five or more. Um, but, you know, given my experiences the last 10, 12 years, um, you know, holding Google, for, the, for example, for the better part of a decade, it, it just makes all the sense in the world to me to look for those investments. I think it's just it's a better use of our time. And, um, you know, there's higher potential. Well, let's get into some of those case studies. Um, sure. You know, you talk, you talk about a few of them, and you, I think you've even pitched them on, on some other platforms as well. Um, and this is in a pitch session, everybody, but more of some, to, to talk about some case studies that uh, exemplify, you know, what you do and, and what you really look for. And, and so, you know, the first two that kind of stood out to me because I, I one, have interviewed them many times, Joint Corp. Um, mm-hmm. Not a shareholder, yeah. um, and also we just featured uh, Avid Technology on mm-hmm. Compounders. Uh, uh, also, not a shareholder. You know, so what? What about those two in particular? Did you see it at the time when you when you made your initial investment? And according to these, I think they were two of your highest uh, returns on yeah. your original investment. Yeah, some of uh, two of the I would say two of the highest um, since we started and launched Pledge Capital for sure. Uh, yeah, so what, what I saw with both of them, um, and I still think it's true, is that they have a relatively low market share, right, of their current opportunity. So there definitely is that potential, right? And it, it's like how you define it, right? Was with joint, with the joint, it's it's very obvious they have a really low market share of the to- total chiropractic industry, um, and obviously the the market has come to understand that opportunity um, where they provide a ton of value, right? Quality adjustments at a value price. Um, When I pitched it, it was, you know, I was comparing it to insurance, right? Like if you had insurance, you saw a chiropractor, you know, your copay was oftentimes more than the $20 that you spent to get a joint adjustment. Right. And, and you're, it's actually a, a pretty fixed time savings. It's more convenient. Uh, you know, you, you're, you're stopping by after you're going to the grocery store or, or to the gym. It's very conveniently located. You're not wasting a ton of time in there. The typical chiropractic adjustment can be quite um, tough. Like it could take 30 minutes, 40 minutes, right? And, and the joint prides itself in delivering um, service in 5, 10, 15 minutes, right? Like it's more convenient and it's just frankly a better value. So uh, given that value prop, I thought there was a very, you know, I thought there was, they were well positioned to take market share. Um, you know, they had figured out the unit economics of their uh, box, their small box retail um, locations. Uh, I liked uh, Peter Holt, and uh, you know, I thought he had a good track record 
uh, running and building out mailboxes, you know, you, the UPS stores. I liked the management team, right? I liked what they were doing with uh, regional developers, bringing in these partners who had skin in the game to help recruit, train, and manage franchisees, right? These were, these are often, very often, successful franchisees in the system who, you know, have had other business successes. And so, in my opinion, they're very well-qualified partners to help grow the system. You know, they de-risk, um, they de-risk growth, right? I, you know, often compare it to the master franchise model used by some other franchise systems, franchise chains, uh, to help them grow. And, uh, you know, especially internationally. So it, it was something that I, that I liked. I liked that move, uh, despite, you know, investors criticizing, uh, they're giving up too much economics, right? Like, I think it's more important to grow the total pie, uh, as opposed to, you know, fight for the, I mean, fight for the pieces of it, right? It's much more important to enlarge it. And so that, that was a dynamic that, dynamic that I saw at, at the joint, um, you know, a model that I was very familiar with, uh, really good value prop. And there's a lot of similarities with Avid, right, as well. Um, depending on how you cut it, right, they have very high market share of the premium and the, the Hollywood, right, the, the Hollywood and, and, you know, the really professional music uh, and the audio side of, of the business. But they have really little, if, if very minimal market share of the, the entire professional content, um, you know, uh, the, the tool set for the entire content creation industry, right? They have, for, for the average YouTube video, uh, no one, very few people are using Avid, right? You know, if you look at uh, whether it's GarageBand or iMovie or Premiere or the litany of, of creative tools that people use, Avid doesn't really play into that. And I liked the transformation they were making from perpetual to subscription, right? Instead of charging 500, 1,000, 1,500 a license, they were lowering the, the barriers to, to try or, or use their product, right? You, they were pricing it at 20 or $50 a month. Um, and they were investing to simplify the, the product, um, improve the user interface, make it easier for users to discover the various tools. And so, uh, right, just let me explain that a little bit more. Um, very complicated software, so helping people figure out, okay, so there's the color grading and the audio and the normal video editing and breaking these up into different workstations. And so I, I liked that transformation. I liked that they were investing in the cloud, invested in, investing in uh, edit on demand, um, and just frankly, just improving their overall product. Um, so I saw a similar dynamic. I thought they were well positioned if you know they choose to do so to go after more market share outside of their core business, right? To potentially go down market. Uh, my friend Luis Sanchez has done some 
could work on, um, you know, their corporate opportunity um, with uh, the, the Vimeo kind of uh, customer set, right? There's a big opportunity there with millions and millions of companies now investing to create videos to talk to various stakeholders, internal or external. Uh, there's, uh, you know, tons of YouTubers who are making money now, uh, vlogging or in all the different niches, right? Like there's millions of people making money, right? And with podcasting too, right? There's more and more people who are making money as podcasters. And in my opinion, that's only going to continue. And so having that brand being known as, you know, and if they should advertise this more, right? They're, they're the, you know, the premier tool for editing the most complicated video, you know, the most, the highest end movies, right? And it's used by all these different musicians, uh, whether it's, you know, Ariana Grande or Coldplay or whoever to make their, their music. Um, if they advertise their 20 or $50 tool per month tool, I think they're well positioned to, to go after a, a much bigger slice of the overall pie, you know, to grow outside their Hollywood uh, moat. Um, so that kind of sums up. I think there's there's similarities between those two businesses. Gotcha. And, and I have to ask. I mean, why did you end up closing out both positions? Or are you still are you still a shareholder in either? So look, I I'm still a shareholder in Avid. It's okay. still one of our top five positions. The joint, frankly, is a lot more of a cost of capital at this point. You know, it's kind of 10x since we bought it. I just, I struggle to get to this, this, the level of IRRs that, you know, I typically, you know, search for. So when I find something that has a 25 or 30% IRR, I, you know, I, I sell the joint to, to, to buy that. By that new investment you know obviously i understand it you know the joint very well and so that creates a high hurdle for me to go into something else but i'm still bullish the joint long term over five ten time horizon but i just i don't think the returns are are nearly as good as some of the other things that i see now gotcha hey, and so of all the case studies that you listed in your in your pitch deck um what would you say is the closest to this kind of inflect in near-term inflection point type investing? You know, what, which which one of those did you look at? Like, oh, like I think if this had like not a necessarily a binary bet, but like you're thinking to yourself, okay, if these couple things happen, like this could this could really result in a lot of realized value. From here, do you mean from here something that isn't well understood and no and still. Uh, towards that or, or just like the clearest example of that inflection point that dang now you put me on the spot i want to know both <laughs> i guess i want to know both <laughs> right <laughs> yeah uh i actually think so for the first for um the joint and the and avid they they both had you know they have both had factors you know, I think they both fit under that inflection point, right? Like, not to beat a uh, uh, beat, beat a dead horse, but you know, with with Avid, I, I really liked their move into the regional developer strategy. I really thought that was going to accelerate growth and and improve their chances to you know capture their TAM. 
Um, and with Av Avid, I really like their transformation. But those those are, you know, I guess playing out. Um, I think Avid still has a ways to go. I think um, advertising and building out a pipeline uh, to, you know, advertise more, to, to invest in more performance advertising, that's still, you know, low, in my opinion, low hanging fruit. I think it's very likely they, they invest more than the two or $3 million they disclosed in their regulatory filings. I, I mean, I don't see why in a few years they're not spending 10, 15 or more uh, a year uh, on performance advertising, looking for well-qualified, uh, you know, leads that are likely to convert into, you know, paying subscribers. Um, for something that's a little fresher and that I think is kind of building towards, I, I really like what Angie is doing. I really like what um, uh, Oisin Hanrahan is doing over at Angie. Uh, the lead gen business is, you know, I think there's a ceiling to what, you know, what you can do selling leads to service professionals uh, and building out a, and building out a, a marketplace, right? A, a, an Uber for professional services. That's very interesting to me. I think that's absolutely the right move to make long-term. Um, you know, and they, they had a very funny quote in their last letter about how, uh, you know, like, uh, home renovation projects, which take more time and cost more, uh, building out this business, uh, this marketplace business, this Uber of uh, you know home services is also taking more time and, and costing more. Uh, but I absolutely believe it's the right thing to do and to pursue. And I really like that they're buying um, general contractors networks. I think there's a lot of opportunity for them to to do that and in, invest in, um, you know, contractors who are a little bit more tech uh, savvy, a little bit tech forward that have come up with some interesting ways to deploy tech. Um, and I look forward to seeing what they do over the next two, three, five years, because I, I think they're, make, they're making the right moves and I like what they're doing there. And that one's earlier. Very cool. And last case study I have to ask you about is, you know, your Netflix thesis and looking at that yeah. and, and how, how that went for you guys. So it, it from what I understand, you were a shareholder in Netflix before you started the fund and then you redeployed um, capital once you did start the fund and you made one and a half X gain on that investment. And tell us what your thesis was when you then redeployed the capital uh, during that time. We actually owned Netflix at the beginning um, in 16. In okay. 16, 17, I think for <clears throat> for part of 18 too. Um, obviously, ended up being you know another of those uh, mistakes where you sell too early and and with Netflix, I also didn't hold enough of it. <laughs> uh, both uh, the first time I bought it after the Quickster um, debacle and, and also at the beginning of launch. Um, and yeah, look, it's it's it was it's a very important mental model that we have, um, you know, watching and, and learning from Netflix, um, the, the first, especially the first time around, but also the second time around when, when we bought it again. You know, the first time 
management was building out DVD stream. Uh, sorry, they were building out streaming, right? They had a cash cow in the DVD business. Um, I remember binge watching and discovering binging in in probably 2012 or 13, you know, binging all a bunch of different episodes and just falling in love with that no commercial model and just thinking, wow, this is a fantastic value. This is way better than cable. Uh, anything you can watch on cable. Um, and, uh, you know, bought it after Quickster, really thought that, you know, the math made sense to split up the two and start to charge for streaming on its own instead of patch packaging together. Well, you know, the street was angry that they're basically ramping prices up on subscribers like 60, 70%. And so that's when I bought the first time. But, you know, I struggled to make the math work, right? After the stock went up 150%. Um, I thought there was a lot of valid criticism <laughs> from the shorts. Uh, you know, there's constantly spending more money, right? They're burning cash, they're borrowing money, the balance sheet looks really bad. Uh, the cash flow statement looks really bad. I, frankly, I couldn't model a path towards, um, you know, profits, right? And I think that's it's one of those cases where management, a good management team, right? And Reed Hastings at this point, I consider him one of the best CEOs ever, um, where, you know, a good management team can outperform your expectations. And, and looking what, at what they did, the second time I bought them uh, was at a much higher price, right? I sold it probably in the high teens. Um, and I was buying it back at five times the price <laughs> years later. But I really liked what they, do they were doing with originals. I really enjoyed them. Really liked House of Cards back then. I thought uh, there was, you know, I, I basically created this list of all their originals and had uh, the critic reviews, the, the, uh, the viewer reviews, and just kept tracking them. And at some point I was like, wow, this is a good portfolio of, of originals that they're creating. And not only does that generate that uh, water cooler conversation, right? People now want to subscribe to Netflix because this is the only, where, only place you can watch this, this show, but it enhances the stickiness, right? Like you want to, you still want to subscribe in year two, three, four of House of Cards or Orange is the New Black so that you can watch those shows. And, so it's it's one it's good for advertising it's good for word of mouth and it enhances retention and all now it, it actually addresses that short thesis where you know before there you know revenue grows this much cost go this much and it, just, it constantly goes up the same same proportion and now you can kind of start modeling out that okay revenue is going to accelerate and you can actually see a path towards costs, you know, leveling out and you can get, you can make the math work at that point. Um, so I bought it back at a much higher price. The valuation still looked expensive. I should have made it a much larger position. I should have held it longer the second time as well. But, uh, you know, we're always learning and I like to think that I, have cut down on that mistake with the joint, you know, held, uh, that was my largest position and it went up 10X and I held it 
for the vast majority, the bulk of that position for the, the entire ride. So nice. uh, <laughs> hopefully make fewer of those mistakes going forward. hundred percent. Well, you know, that's a hard mistake to learn from, right? You know, I, yeah. you, you, you make a good amount of money. You, you're seeing that return. Yeah. Like, oh, this, it's, that's a hard one. Yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like about as a value investor, right. When back in 2003 or 2004, when you made a hundred percent or 200% on an investment idea, you thought that was pretty good. I thought that was pretty good already. And so to break that, habit and buy something at 5x what you sold it at it was it was pretty tough you know i it took a while to get over that because i remember just watching netflix go from 18 to 25 to 30 to 60 to 100 something and then come back down and i was kicking myself the entire time right and i was because i love the product right i was a very loyal subscriber for a decade now and uh and <laughs> You, you don't like it when you love a product and the stock keeps going higher and you're not involved. So <laughs> it was tough. I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, uh, the, one of my favorite Twitter accounts, Ian uh, Castle always tweets about stuff like that. Like why buy, yeah. why, why, why not buy something that you love as it continues to go higher? Right. Because yeah. It, it, yeah. Brought, I mean, there's a lot of math that's involved Absolutely. too. Don't get me, of course, you know, but, right. Right. but at the same time, like just theoretically, you know, like, yeah. yeah, you know, he's a great teacher. He makes a lot of really of good best. points. Love following. One of the best. Absolutely. <laughs> so much, Very so cool. many words of wisdom <laughs> from his account. I, I asked him one time in our last year, I was like, how do you come up with this stuff? Like, I, like, yeah. I the, he was like, I just, it comes to me. And then I tweeted. And yeah. Goes, I'm like, that's so He's sick. one of those guys. He's <laughs> one of those older guys. He probably has, it feels like he has like a book of like a thousand different smart things that he's like accumulated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. All right, dude. Well, I want to now uh, get to my favorite question that I ask everybody that uh, that comes on here. You know, what, what would you say is an investing experience that really changed your career or taught you the most thus far, both in your career and or personally? So for, for sure, definitely Netflix is in there as one of my top learning experiences. You know, I mentioned before UBS, at UBS covering McDonald's and, and Panera. Uh, now, you know, just like I said before, seeing that short-termism on Wall Street, a uh, company that was doing absolutely the right thing under wrong shake, investing to fundamentally improve the customer experience with uh, online ordering, digital ordering, kiosks. Like, I mean, he was ahead of his time back then. I mean, all this thing, all this stuff now makes so much sense. It's like, it's basically obvious to, to anyone who goes to any of these chains now. But, you know, in 2014, 2015, it, there was a lot of doubt, right, on, on what kind of impact that was going to have. And, um, and, you know, obviously with my pivot, um, I think that was another really key learning experience. And I have to credit Chuck Aker, um, who, you know, I, I thought I learned a ton from just video interviews he gave. Forgot where at this point, right? But talking about his three-legged stool and, you know, I felt he really convinced me. Uh, he, was, he played a pretty big role and why I invested in Google, um, you know, I just thought it's a verb, right? It's 
it makes all the sense in the world. It's it's free. It's so much value, right? Like Microsoft being, they're giving away like money to try to get you to use it, but I'm not gonna accept 50 bucks or 100. I'd rather use Google, right? And and uh, just realizing, um, wow, I mean, every click, every additional click, every five or ten dollars or twenty dollars they collect, it's pure profit, right? Like that and Mastercard were tremendous learning uh, learning examples, uh, tremendous learning experiences. I mean, and um, I would say even going back earlier, right? Um, books like Philip Fisher, I think just looking back, so much wisdom in that book, you know, so many good, you know, case studies and uh, lessons to, to learn. I think just when I look at my involvement as an investor, that scuttlebutt uh, research that he laid out, that Philip Fisher laid out in, in his book, um, Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits, it just, it's only gotten more important to me as like, like the most important tool, in my opinion, just that scuttlebutt. And so every case study in there, I feel is so important. I, I've reread that book a few times at this point, And I feel like every time, like the first time I read it, I don't think I really got it. The second and the third time I read it, you know, I'm still learning. And I'm like, I'm really noticing, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm actually doing stuff like that now. And, uh, uh, you know, what sounded like really foreign to me the first time reading it, now it's like, oh yeah, that, I see exactly what he means. And, and so that's a book that I highly encourage people to, to you know, learn more about um, and read more about. Um, because, you know, first with me, you know, walking through that Netflix example, right, really seeing it right the consumer from the consumer standpoint right loving the product um and all the big key investments that i've made the last five years um just walking through and and performing that scuttlebutt you learned a ton right i'm still learning i'm still i'm a young guy i'm i'm only 32 so i like to think i'm still learning and developing and uh yeah it's it's been a cool journey really cool journey so far and i'm i'm looking forward to the next decade to two decades compounding and learning more. Very cool. All right. Well, to close this out here today, and you kind of already alluded to my next question a little bit, but I mean, what advice would you have for new investors that, you know, want to become compounder bros? <laughs> compounder bros. Oh yeah. That's, uh, I look, I think it's, it's really important just to get out and do, do your own work, right? Like to unplug from a computer screen. I think there's a lot of value in watching interviews with other investors and, and with CEOs. But to like really get out there and do a lot of your own, you know, primary research, right? Not just to, you know, read stuff on, on Twitter and, um, you know, really cut your teeth practicing. Like, I think that's, the most important thing, uh, you just have to keep developing. You have to keep developing your own case studies, right? Like look out for and try to develop, right? Make investments that you think could end up in a textbook in the future, right? Look for those transformations that you think people will study in retrospect. I think you learn a ton 
from those experiences. Um, and that, that's really it. Like, you know, and, and talk to other investors, right? Get their thoughts, right? You can, uh, I, I don't think you should take things personally, right? When someone um, comes up with like a, a valid critique, listen, right? And really think about it. Um, I don't typically like argue. I don't seek to do that when someone comes, like I, I like to think about it and, and, and kind of take my time to kind of process that information. I think it's very valuable to talk to other investors and, and hear their, uh, you know, the, the negative, right? The, 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 the feedback, right? If, uh, it's always good to have an investor play devil's advocate to your view. And so, you know, you don't never want to be argumentative against that, right? You just want to listen and, and process, right? I mean, sometimes you can go back and, and then tell them what you really think, but really take the time first to, to consider, um, you know, looking back at some of my experiences, kind of go back to one of your earlier questions. Um, short sellers are very talented people. Uh, I think they do a lot of work. You want to read, um, you know, the, the great books in, in that field. And you want to listen to short sellers, right? Like, I think they, they do a lot of good scuttlebutt research and you can learn a lot from them. Very good. All right. Well, Ed, with that, where can our audience go and find more information to follow you and, and to learn more about Pledge Capital? Yeah, everyone. I'm uh, happy when people reach out. So you can you know, definitely feel free to reach out. I, I'm on Twitter, uh, Edward W. Chang. And, uh, you know, I posted some material on Pledge Capital slash, you know, documents. So you can check out what we have posted there. I, I'm not as active. I, I, I wish I, I should, you know, when I find time, I'm going to be more active. So I'm, I'm happy to chit chat if anyone wants to reach out and, and talk ideas. Always like, always enjoy that. <laughs> Very good. Well, Ed, thank you so much for joining me today, man. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next update. You too, uh, Bob. It was Bobby. It was, it was uh, fantastic coming on here. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoy everything you put out, and uh, hope I uh, look forward to keep the conversation going. Oh, for sure. You'll you'll be on a roundtable soon enough. Cool. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Talk to you later. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.